When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to tonight's episode of the 1871 podcast. And our special guest tonight is the former crew player and manager, David Artell. And before we start, I would just like to mention my dad, Brian Roach. Um, Today is the first anniversary of my dad passing away. And as some of you might know, he was a former Reading director and he helped to block the proposed merger with Oxford United in 1983. So just wanted to mention my my dad again today. Um, And uh, I'm sure a few of you will remember back to to that time in in the mid 80s and then my dad went on to become a a director um back in the elm park days and that was back in the days when uh i was the pa announcer for for one season at reading as well at elm park i don't know if you ever heard me announcing the halftime scores johnny but anyway let's move on from let's let's bring it right up to date reading won on saturday yes and actually i was I was having a conversation with with David talking about tonight and uh, David confidently predicted a a Reading win. We were obviously very hopeful. Uh, Two goals from Tom Ince, an Andy Carroll penalty and Johnny, a decent performance from Reading as well. Yeah, yeah, it really was. uh, We spoke before on the podcast about it was a a kind of cup final game. They really need to win that, you know, and and after the Cardiff performance, they really stepped up and... uh, you know, when you're 1-0 up, you're thinking, get that second. Didn't happen in the first half. But then, two, you know, you got the second and that was it. But even as a Reading fan, you're still thinking, even though it's 3-0 with two minutes to go and they got a goal back. And I'm like, oh, no. I was kind of confident. But you never know with this. But that's, you know, that's, you would hope that's the springboard now to, to staying up. 13-point gap, I think it is. Um, you know, you really, with the fixtures we've got, you should be able to get... Looking at what two wins, maybe a draw. Yeah. And um, on on that note, I mean, Reading are on forty four points now, which is already three more than we finished on last season. So, in theory, yeah, we could already be safe, but it, it's looking, yeah, looking pretty good now. I mean, we're sort of looking fairly comfortable in mid table, aren't we? So, I, I think I think we we could be quite confident that Reading are staying up now, can't we? As, as Reading fans can ever be confident. <laughs> um, and I just want to ask you, how important of a player do you think Tom Ince has become for Reading? Because, um, you know, he was out of the side and we were struggling. He's come back in, got two goals, got a win. OK, it was against Blackpool, uh, who were down near the bottom. But, um, you know, he, he got a couple of goals on Saturday and it, he's he's probably in contention for player of the season this year, isn't he? I would say probably a clear, clear winner of it already, to be honest. I think, you know, without him, you know, he's the engine of the team. And I think that game when he was rested, you know, you notice the difference. He gives that energy. I know his dad says that he's a moaner, probably like his dad. But you need that in a team. You need people that, that get people going. But he back he backs up his words with actions. You know, every game, you know, how many times he's there in the 93rd minute chasing, putting the tackles in. And we've missed that as a club for years. And, you know, hopefully it's done his career good, you know, where he was kind of drifting around for a few years, not really going anywhere. Now he's maybe found home and obviously his dad's there, but he seems to love playing here. And I think I saw a stat the other day. I think it's his highest amount of goals in the championship for a a fair few years, which, you know, and it's not just the goals, it's the, you know, the ones he creates as well and the energy he brings. 
And this is, uh, I think I'm right in saying this is Paul Lintz's longest um, time as a manager, isn't it? Already? I think. Is that right? Have I got that right? Yeah, just over a year. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So look, let, let's, um, uh, Dylan's not with us because he's, um, he's been out in Algeria at the weekend with, with his side, Marumo Gallants. Uh, unfortunately, they lost 2-0 in Algeria last night in the, in the CAF Confederation Cup, um, after winning their first two games. So disappointing result for, for Dylan. Um, but they're still in a good position to qualify from the group stage. Um, so we'll, uh, we'll be talking about him about, uh, Muromo Gallants and what he's doing out in South Africa next time we speak to him, I'm sure. Um, but I want to, uh, introduce David Artel now. So, uh, quick introduction to, to David. Um, David, correct me if I've got any of this wrong because you played, did play for a few clubs. So, um, you were a centre back with Rotherham, Shrewsbury or Shrewsbury as some people pronounce it, Mansfield, which is how I know you. Um, when I was a reporter at the Nottingham Evening Post, covered Mansfield games. So that's how I know David. Um, and then you went on to Chester, Morecambe, Crewe, Port Vale, Northampton, Wrexham, Barlatown, and a few other clubs besides. And you also played for Gibraltar. And you played um, at least at one of your, a uh, couple of your clubs, I think, under... Um, former Reading player Keith Curl, didn't you? I did, Keith. I had Keith at Mansfield, where I know, where I know you from, and then he signed me for Chester when he yep. uh, left uh, Mansfield. Well, he yep. took me with him to Chester. And what was, I mean, I remember him as a player, like fantastic players, one of the <laughs> fastest defenders um, that uh, I've ever seen. I mean, you know, Michael Jilks was sort of playing as a, as a wing-back Um on a few occasions, but in in terms of an actual defender, I'm not sure I've seen too many quicker players than, than Keith Curl. But what was he like as a manager, David? He, he was um, first first of all, he, he was he wanted us to play football, and it, it's, it sounds crazy, but as the years have gone past, I think he's gone more and more away from that. But when he first, you know, Mansfield was, I think it was his first job actually, and he was he was brilliant. I have to say, he was really good. He, we had a good young team. Billy Dearden had, had just left, and we had Liam Lawrences who played for Sunderland and the like, and, and uh, Lee Williamson who went to play Chef United, and Adam Murray who's went Derby and he's now filed, I think, as manager. Uh, we had some real good players, some young players, and we're all together with, interspersed with people like Kevin Pilkington, the goalkeeper. Um, you know, so he wanted us to play football, and he was very good, and he, and he uh, encouraged us to play football. I have to say. And I think it was his first year I was there. We lost in the playoff final to Huddersfield on penalties, um, which was a bit of a kick in the teeth. Um, and then the following year, he got the sack, basically because he fell out with the chairman and, and sued the club <laughs> and won, um, which is, I suppose, relevant, really, but for him. Yeah, but yeah he, was, he was a good bloke. Yeah, I remember that because I was at uh, working at the Nottingham Evening Post at that time. I, I remember that very well. Um, yeah. So what... In terms of, obviously, you've taken different things from different managers, I would guess. But in terms of what you what you took from Keith Curl, uh, in terms of your learning process, and and then into your role as a manager later on with with Crew, what, what would you say that you learned or took from from Keith as a manager? I think Keith was um, pragmatic. He didn't. Um... It was very, it was very black and white at times. Um, it was very laid back and chilled. He never let the pressure, any pressure that he was under, come towards us, which I think was a, a real good lesson to learn. He, he, you know, I didn't know any of the stuff that was going on between him and the boardroom, between him and the chairman, until way after. I don't think many of the players did. You, Usually the players get a sense. Most footballers are really intuitive. They, they, they can feel, um, you know, they can feel what's happening. If you like, we didn't get. I certainly didn't. Maybe it's because I was young and naive. I don't know. Maybe the older players did and just kept it from us. I don't know. But he was very good at um, absorbing any pressure. I'd say we weren't under a lot of pressure because we well, young kids are just loving playing football and, and playing good football and winning most weeks, you know, in, in the top of the league. 
He was very good at that. And I think that was that was one of the biggest things. And and it, and it encourages us to enjoy ourselves. I think that was, you know, in in the in, in certainly in today's world where it's all um you know corporate, it's all very money orientated, it's sinister at times, all, all the bad side of football that that can creep in. He was very much still a big kid at heart. So as as much as the detail that it certainly helped me as a former centre half, you know, he was a defender obviously. It certainly helped me with all the nuances of it. You know, he was also one of the Really, really enjoy ourselves, and and yeah. it, I, I really enjoyed my time at Mansfield. Really enjoyed it. Uh, and I should say, I, I probably have uh, left it, um, uh, you know, a bit bit longer than I should have done to to say why we we've got you on the podcast actually, because I had a, a a little funny story to to start with. Um, I, I promote each episode on Twitter, and I said that on the eighteen seventy one podcast on Monday night, we've got former. Um, crew manager David Artell, who'd be talking about the situation at Reading and the pressure that Paul Ince might be under. And um, some uh, someone um, replied to that comment and said, that's absolutely crazy. I was just wondering what former crew manager thinks of the situation at, at Reading. Um, but <laughs> the, the reason we got you on is because you were manager at crew for five years. You were, obviously, there's a Keith Curl connection, as we've talked about, but I, I just thought it would be good to get someone to come on from an external perspective. It's usually uh, ex-Reading players or managers that, that we get on uh, as guests, um, being a Reading podcast, of course. But you've recently been in that situation of the, the pressures that um, modern-day managers are under, you know, from, from the media, from the fans... Uh, from from everywhere, really, it's it's can be quite a pressurised job, and different managers handle that pressure in different different ways. But ju- just really as a further introduction to you, Dave, in, in terms of your um, managerial career, you, you've basically had one job in management so far with with Crew from 2017 until last year, um, and you achieved promotion as a player with Rotherham, and you're actually the only person who's achieved promotion as both a player and manager at Crew, You were League Two Manager of the Year in um, 2020, but you lost your job last year after Crew were relegated. Uh, and as I say, we just want to talk to you about the pressures of modern day management and the type of pressure that Paul Ince will be under as Reading manager. Um, but before that, and Johnny, I'm going to let you come in. Uh, I know you're sitting there waiting patiently as usual, so thank you for that. Um, but David, before we talk to you about that, I would like to take you back to your playing days, partly because I know you have a one of those funny stories we like about um, former Royals assistant manager Martin Allen. But um, you won promotion with Rotherham in the 99-2000 season, and I'm sure some Reading fans will remember that it was Rotherham who pipped Reading to automatic promotion the following season and Reading ended up losing the playoff final against Walsall that season. Um, now, I'm, I'm pleased to say that Reading won both of those games against Rotherham that season. Um, 3-1 at Rotherham and 2-0 at Reading. You didn't play in the first game, I don't think. Um, Martin Butler, James... I was suspended. Yeah, I, I did wonder. I, I didn't want to mention that, but being a centre-back and, and knowing you as I do... I wondered if that might be the case, but yes. Yeah, so Martin Butler, Jamie Curitan, and Jim McIntyre scored for Reading in the first game. Mark Robbins scored for Rotherham. Uh, you did play in in the game at Reading, and uh, Reading won two 0 with goals from James Harper and Martin Butler, and Jamie Curitan, Phil Parkinson, Darren Kasky, Tony Rougier, Jim McIntyre, Graham Murty, Barry Hunter among the other Reading players who played in that game. Do you remember either of those two games, David? It's, uh, well, I, I, I play, I'll, I'll tell you the, the, the sort of uh, my recollections from both games, starting yeah. with the second of them two games, the one yeah. where Reading was at home. We lost 2-0, full house. It was, I think it was, I think we were top, actually. We, I think we were above Millwall even at the time. We, I might have got that wrong, but we were certainly in the top two, three. And so we're Reading. And we lost 2-0. James Harper scored with a good volley, but he shouldn't have been on the pitch. 
he'd 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 gone in for a challenge on our six yard line with our, our midfielder Darren Garner and broke his leg. He should he shouldn't even been on the pitch. It was one of the worst challenges I saw in my whole career. And the referee, because there was, you know, literally all twenty two players in eighteen yards, just missed it. Um, do I think he should have looked at the massive, you know, bending down Garner's leg and seeing that it was a poor challenge? Probably. Um, did that rockers? I think it did as a team. You know that Daz was a a good player, big influence around the dressing room, and to see him on the pitch in so much pain. I know it sounds crazy, but we're just human beings. And I think, if I remember rightly, I think James Harper scored within probably five or ten minutes of that happening. It might have been a bit longer, but I, I can remember thinking we 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 just weren't we just didn't feel right as a team after that. I know it sounds crazy, and that's it's, it's not an excuse. Reading with a better team on the day, um, you know, but I do think that that was a massive turning point of that game. That's the only sort of recollection I had from that game. The, the other, the game at Millmore was obviously Alan Pardew was the manager, Martin Allen was the assistant. I'd two weeks before my home debut, um, I'd got sent off last minute. Guy Branson headed the ball back to the goalkeeper. I'd read what he was doing, but unfortunately for me, Jermaine McSporin of Wickham also <laughs> managed to do it and he's quicker than me, so I brought him down. I got sent off. The goalkeeper saved the free kick and we won 1-0 and the manager Ronnie Moore said, great challenge, you won us the game. And, you know, he did and then went to Stoke the week after, scored, got sent off again. But that got... Um, Got two yellow cards, but the second yellow card actually the linesman had to tell the referee that I was the wrong player. I didn't commit the second foul. <laughs> it was someone else. It was Guy Branston. So I very nearly got sent off again. So then I missed the Reading game, the one at home, and it's one of them where when you're not in the team, you want you to. I, I always wanted my team to win, but as a defender, I want us to win five four, and one of the defenders bit four 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 goals because you just walk back in the team. Now, it didn't quite happen like that, but we did look because we lost 3-1. But the first goal, the centre-half that came in to the team for me, literally ran into our goalkeeper. And I think it was either Martin Butler, it might have been Jamie Cute, I can't remember, who just literally rolled it into an empty goal. So I thought, job done, I'm, I'm going back in the team. And, and so, so it proved. Um, I have to say, I only got in the team because of a fuel crisis, which sounds crazy, but it's true. So, if you want me to tell you that in a minute, I will do. Um, the the biggest thing from that game at Millmore was um, I'm if anybody's been to Millmore, they know it's not a particularly nice ground, an unpleasant ground. Alan Pardew will testify to that because two seasons later, he brought his West Ham team to the ground, fully clothed, uh, fully changed. They got changed at the hotel, and we promptly beat them one 0 this was big spending in West Ham. We just got relegated from the Premier League, coming to little old crappy Rotherham, Millmore. Uh, the changing rooms are too small. Well, have that. We'll have the three points. He did his team talk for us, but that's that was Alan Pardew. So anyway, I'm I'm stood. If you walk up the tunnel at, at Millmore, there's a there's a, a laundry room on the right hand side with about four quite steep steps up, four or five quite steep, steep steps up. And as you walk up the tunnel, the 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 um, home dressing room door is, is bang in front of you. Whereas the away team dressing room, you have to walk all the way down the back of the stand and you go in sort of three quarters of the way down the stand. So I'm stood on these stairs so I can see our our door, but obviously I can't see around the corner. But anyway, all the Reading teams stood in the um, in the tunnel, the referee and the linesman at the front. And there's one linesman stood by the by Rotham's dressing room door waiting for, for, you know, my teammates to come out. And so is Martin Allen. No top on, just a pair of shorts. And I think, if I remember rightly, he had flip-flops on. That's what I've got in mind. I might be wrong with that, but he certainly had no top on and just shorts. So, obviously, Kev Watson, you know, somebody I play with, play for Reading, Skip. He comes out first. He sort of gives the old, I ain't got a necklace on, I ain't got a ring on. Look at me, studs. Pulls his shorts up to the line to the assistant referee. At which point, Martin Allen goes, "Lads, this lad can't tackle." Next is Mike Pollock, goalkeeper. He sort of does his chain, his shorts, his boots. 
lads, this lad hates coming for crosses. And he proceeds to do this for about four or five players until he gets to Guy Branston. Now, if anybody knows Guy Branston, he's got the head the size of a small country. And he is a big, big lad, let me tell you. <laughs> I used to pick Paul Hurst up, you know, the groomsman manager, literally above his head and throw him. You know, Hurst, he was, <laughs> wasn't, Hurst he was a small lad, but he was 70 kilograms or something and just used to sort of do presses above his head and throw him. So obviously Guy does this sort of chain and necklace and, and rings and does shorts and, and his boots and all that. And before Martin Allen can say something <laughs> about Guy, he sort of went, Rah! right in Martin Allen's face. And he just went, lads, this lad's a shit house," And just walked down the tunnel. The whole tunnel just burst out laughing. All the Robin players, all the, all the Reading players, just burst out laughing. Why Martin Allen were doing this? I, I'll never know. I, I think it was just a, a mad dog thing to do. Um, but Guy caught him on the hop and nobody messed with Guy. Just no, nobody did. And because he caught him on the hop, he, he, he sort of took about four steps backwards. It was one of the funniest things I've ever seen, certainly in, certainly in, a, in a tunnel of a football stadium, that's for sure. Yeah, we, we got a few a few funny stories about Martin Allen from this podcast. <laughs> yeah. um, did, did you Can you remember if you played any other games against Reading, David, in your playing days? Oh, did I? Um, I'm trying to think. I, I must have find, done... I couldn't find any. I've, I've done some research. Oh, maybe I didn't. I'm but, trying to think... Yeah. Just from, I don't know. Just from that from that season, if you while you're sort of trying to remember if there were any yeah. other games, um, who were the the Reading players that stood out from that time? Because you had people like Darren Caskey in the side, Phil Parkinson, yeah. who's now of course Wrexham manager, yeah. um, Jamie Curiton. Uh, I, I always remember Curiton was a real good player, real good player, live wire, you know. I think he got, a, for me, we, we got told, oh, he's not very good with the ball into his feet. I thought it was excellent in the, in the in the two games that season, certainly. The game that I played against him, played against him later on in his career when he, he was at Northampton. Did he go Northampton? I can't remember. But I played against him later on in his career and he's a, he's a good player. Uh, you, when you come up against the, the strikers that you're on to look at, he was the one that I can remember thinking, this, this lad's a good player. What, what I would say is, I remember more from the Millwall team that year than I do the Reading team. Because I, well, I saw it was proven. Millwall went up when Reading didn't. Um, Millwall had better players that did, and they deserved to go up. But obviously, Darren Caskey was an excellent player. Excellent player. He could manipulate a ball onto both feet, and he had, his range of passing was excellent. Really, really good. Um, I'm trying to think who else was there. Was it you, you mentioned? Whitbread. Yeah, you mentioned um, an ex-Reading player that you you played with. Um, any any other ex-Reading players that you that you played with that you can remember? I played I, I played with I played with Glenn Little at Wrexham, one of the funniest guys in football that I well certainly I come across. He was hilarious. He used to call me the Bear just because he said I looked like one. Oh. I, I I don't think I've got any sort of bear-like qualities, but he had a, a tendency to nickname people after animals. One one lad a striker called um, Danny Wright was called the Buffalo, just because he thought he looked like a buffalo, and and it just crazy stuff like that. He'd it, it, it play cards at the back of the bus, Glenn, and he had a, a sort of little quirky saying for everything, and he was an excellent footballer as well. I have to say, he had really good feet. His sort of legs had gone by the time that I, he was probably 34, 35 when I played with him at Wrexham. Um, but he was good fun, I have to say, real good fun. Um, so I, oh, go on. I, I, play, I obviously played with Kev Watson. He was my skipper at Rotherham. Yeah. Um, Martin Butler come to us. Okay. He was he was a good footballer. Real good footballer. He, he was, a, I think Martin Butler, I don't know if you'd agree, Johnny, but he, he was one of those kind of, he was a really good player, but possibly a bit underrated. Do you think, Johnny? Yeah, when he got that injury, I think against Swansea. Yeah. I think he damaged his ankle and he was never the same afterwards. Up to that yeah. point, you know, him and Curiton as a partnership, it was probably one of the best partnerships we'd had. That was, that was a good red inside, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, you know, we scored goals for fun that season with them two. And Martin Butler did the... Yeah, he was a good finisher, but he did a lot of the hard 
donkey work if you like. Martin Butler had one of the best brains I've, I've played with. He was really, because he wasn't, he wasn't particularly quick at all. That's why probably why Curitan thrived off him. But he had a brilliant brain. He, could, he, he knew where to stand and where to pull you. He, and he had technical ability, real good technical ability. And when he had a chance, you know, end of the day, strikers get judged on goals. He, he finished what he what he had to finish. He, he was a, a real good all rounder without having exceptional physical qualities. In like he couldn't get away from players with with, with speed. He, he was good, but really good. Yeah. Did you play against Nicky Forster as well, David? Yes, he not for. I don't think it was for Reading. Um, yeah, I did. I'm trying to think where though. I'm trying to remember the striker and I picture him in the kits. Did he play for Oxford, Nicky Forster? He played for a few no. clubs, didn't he? Yeah. I'm trying. I, I did. I can remember because he was. I I think Curitan and Forster. You you'll say they were, they were di- completely different because you saw more of them. But I compared. I thought them two were very similar. In the way that they played, they were a bit of a live wire, um, could get in behind you in a flash. That, that that's how I, I when I come up against them, I can remember thinking to myself, that they're, they're similar. That, that you know you, you sort of bracket people in, I, like for example Martin Butler. I equate him to a a very a much better Phil Jevons. I don't know if you can remember Phil Jevons. Yeah. He had a sort of lower league career. No exceptional pace, real good brain, good technical ability. Came to Everton, but was better. Butts was miles better. Like you sort of group people into who they're similar to, and and yeah. I think Nicky Forster and Jamie Curitan were very similar. That, that's just my. And, and my David, do you, do you remember Phil Parkinson back in his playing days? Because obviously you played you played against him in that game for yeah. Red. Do you remember him as a player? Yes, I I thought he was the sort of. He, he he was one of the I think was sort of like the ticker over and the one that you'd miss more than anyone in the team when he's not there. But I would put someone like Phil down as an underappreciated player. We, 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 Darren Garner was ours that year. Played every game. He was brilliant. Brilliant at what he did. It was only when he wasn't there that he went. We missed him today. But nobody sort of mentioned him because others would get the headlines all over yeah. the pitch. Um, and, and I thought Phil had that kind of career, really, I have to say. And, and David, I want to come on to um, one of the kind of themes of, of, of this evening um, shortly. But obviously yourself as a, a, a centre-back, I think I've I think I've think seen you described and possibly you've described yourself as, inverted commas, an archetypal old-fashioned centre-back. Um, so probably to Reading fans of a particular age, might be somebody like Martin Hicks. I, I don't know really. Um, but, um, well, obviously Reading had a few seasons up in, in the Premier League and, and you would have seen some of their players play during that time. In, in terms of, you know, yourself as a defender, who, if there's anyone you can remember from the Reading sides that were in the, in the Premier League, the, the defenders. Oh, Is there anyone else that stood out for you? Gosh, you're testing me now. Um, well, you can I'm come back to that. Think. You can tell well, us. Well, the, no, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think. There was people. I, the, the first one was Andre BK. Yeah. Yeah. Who uh, I look back and I think to myself, he, he now probably wouldn't, would be in the championship because he was all about power and pace. But not very gifted. That's that again. I, I, if I offend any any Reading fans or God forbid his family was listening, <laughs> um, but he was very much a stopper. Now, yeah. when you get in the Premier League now, you can't just you know centre halves now are the playmakers of the whole team. Certainly, the Premier League they're the ones who have most touches of the ball. They're the ones who dictate the tempo. You cannot be just a stopper. You yeah. can't anymore. You've got to have so much more. So someone like him was excellent in terms of low block, you know, snuffing out the opposition's number nine, who was probably the best player, but actually was an absolute liability when you actually wanted him to start moves off. Yeah. So Probably finding that... Though. 
yeah, a proper, you know, you, we're talking about sort of archetypal defenders. He was the first one that I'm coming thinking. Yeah. He was he was brilliant off the ball, on, so on one side of the ball, actually on the other side of the ball when you're in possession. Oof. But then when we're talking Premier League levels, they cost a lot of money. Yeah, you know, yeah. To, to, and, to get the full package now, they cost a lot of money. And um, obviously Paul Ince, same as yourself, David, former player turned manager um Paul's had you, you know he had plenty of abuse from fans of the op- opposition teams as as a player of course but you know from his own fans now he's had abuse um he's had our you know what you might describe as arguments with with journalists and all the pressure that that goes with modern football management and Johnny I'll let you take over a little bit after this I realize I've asked most of the questions but I just want to ask David as you know as somebody who's experienced pressure you've won promotion as a manager you've experienced relegation as a manager and you've been um you know you've been let go after crew got relegated um you know in 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 the last all, all you've experienced all that in the last few years of course what is the what do you think the pressure will be like for someone like Paul Ince as a modern football manager? First, first of all, what what I would say is pressure is a state of mind. That's the first thing. So I often said to the players, pressure, pressure is only good for two things. Barometers and car tyres. So if you think you're under pressure... That's just your head telling you you're under pressure. It's a bit like if I said to you, are you confident? What is confidence? Well, confidence is a thought. It's how you're thinking, which manifests in your behaviours and your body language. So if I sit here and go, I am confident, well, my body language will be expressive, it will be open, etc. If I go, oh I'm, oh, I'm sweating, I don't know what to say to you, I suddenly end up crossing my arms and, and sort of slouching to each It's that. Pressure's the same. Pressure's the same. So anybody who feels under pressure or feels uh, pressure in any sort of way actually has to take a step back and go, right, let's have a think about this before we even start. Now, that's difficult. It, it's in, in when you're a player, you can, you know, like I say, I used to take all the pressure off the players. Because I used to say, come on, let's, you know, we don't need to dress this up any more than what it is. Again, football and you downplay it and the pressure's not on you guys, all that. If that needs to be said, it doesn't need to be said. You don't even say it. But the manager, you actually need someone to help you with that sometimes because you can end up arguing with press people or stuff. Not that I've ever done that, but at the same time, I can understand why managers sometimes do do that. Um, because there's you having to deal with lots of things that lots of people don't see. So in terms of pressure, just as a, an isolated thing, you have to actually compartmentalise it and, and treat it for what it is. You know, is Graham Potter under pressure? Everyone will say yes. Everyone will say yes. Is he really? He's had 15 games or something, 20 games. Is he? Well, only Todd Bowley and him will know. And some of the staff, you know, that's that's the truth. You know, he could be the most relaxed guy in the world. He needs to actually go, right, let's, you know, think about this. All that kind of stuff. I'm telling Graham Potter how to do his job. But you can actually take a step back and, right, let's get back to what we do here. Let's get back to what we're good at. And then actually, when you simplify it all, when you work out what the plan is, whether that's for training, whether that's for the game plan for the weekend, whatever it might be, individual plans for each player, staff, what their jobs are, now, you know, there's a lot of things to do there. But if that's what, whatever's needed and prioritising, by doing that, the planning takes away stress, takes away pressure, takes away a lot of a lot of the gaps that you're actually thinking about and the things. So you've actually got to go, hang on a minute. You've then got to try and relay that to the stakeholders, stakeholders being the ones above you, CEO, chairman, director of football, but more importantly, really, or just as importantly, the fans, the fans. So, you know, you go, well, Paul Ince has been under pressure this year. That's probably because of results, one, I get that. 
but also is the progress. Is the progress. Because I think if most fans see progress, and remember progress isn't linear, right? They 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 will be forgiving. That doesn't mean to say that you know they just allow anything to happen. That's not that's not what I'm saying. What I mean is they go, right, we're actually got to go from playing like this to playing like this. We're developing these four players to become these this kind of player. Now, and be open and, and, and honest about it to as much as you can. That That's all I tried to be because ultimately when I was a kid, I was a fan. And I, wanted as, I wanted the manager of my football club to be honest as much as he could be, without letting away trade secrets or giving away the game for, you know, the opponents on Saturday or, or you know, that, whatever they, whoever might be, his agent or another agent, another club, whatever it might be. So it, it's that sort of clear and honest communication to as much as you can be. As fans, understanding that if you can't be, going, OK, what are you not telling us? Right, OK. We'll save that for a rainy day rather than just because the problem now, everyone, the world is immediate. Social mm. media makes everything immediate. And on one hand, that's brilliant. The world's such a smaller place. If you want to contact someone in Algeria, it's easy. Whereas 25 years ago, it wasn't. The downside is that everyone has an opinion and suddenly someone who's got no context, not actually thought about it, or let's be honest, it's thick as two short planks, because that, that that is that is true. I'm, you know, I know football fans, but that's not me. Some football fans are thick, uh, and I can say that not having a go at any fan whatsoever, because I'm not associated to any football club. Um, but that's but you've actually but then they put something out that sort of suddenly gains traction, and before you know it, that's the narrative, and it's very hard for. Them Manager to, or even a football club to change that narrative. There's got uh, to be objectivity yeah. all the way through it. Uh, David, obviously, I'm not going to ask you to um, put yourself in Paul Lintz's mind because Paul Lintz will be doing things his way, and he'll yeah. be thinking thinking a, a certain way based on how he wants to do things. But you know, in in the in that situation that he's in, and I think it's fair to say that there has been some progress. We've we've already at this stage of the season we've got more points than we had last season. It was, you know, on a lot of occasions watching Reading last season was pretty dire. There have been some, you know, difficult games this season. There's been ups and downs. Um we we started the season quite well. We fell away. Good result on Saturday. You know, come back against Watford. Um, there's been there's been a, a few good points. There's been some progress, but um, there's still that kind of doom and gloom around the club. And you talk about managers trying to block that side of things out. So, a, a manager in that a manager in that situation, what is he saying to the players? I think the f- the first thing on the doom and gloom. Is is it the manager's job, other than to win football games, which I know is a big part of it, to, for him to strategize where they go? You know, his his job is to strategize the football team and, and develop that. You know, so I'm fairly certain Reading's budget will be very similar to, you know, three quarters of that league, maybe not but half of that league. There's a quarter that's probably you know, a lot lower, and there's a quarter that's significantly bigger with parachute payments. So they're well, very much a median ranking team. But in order to show progress, how, how do you measure progress? Now, as a manager, you go, well, you need some help. You need a bigger picture. You need people to drive that side of it because that gives hope. It gives him hope. It gives him inspiration as a manager. Well, it certainly wouldn't mean. I can't speak for Paul, but it certainly wouldn't mean. So you know that people People are driving the club forward in other ways. And, and I think that's that's the first thing. When you come to the players, I, I read um, a, an article in the Harvard Business Review about a month ago, and they were on about Generation Z, so anyone born from sort of 2000, what they're after in work. They want to get better. 
improving their actual current role. They want the opportunity to progress in their current employer. So go from, say, making their, play, not playing to making their debut, playing 10 games a season to playing 30 games a season, scoring one goal to scoring 10 goals. However you want to objectify that, that kind of thing. And then thirdly, um, having the opportunity to progress beyond that employer. So in other words, get a transfer. Well, and it was something like 95%, 94%, 92% of all applicants said them three things. Footballers are no different. Just Footballers are no different. So as a football manager, football coach, head coach, I'm saying to the players, right, I will improve you. I will afford you the chance to improve you because that's my job. Whether you want to take that, that's down to you. How much you want to do when I'm not directly with you, that's down to you. So I, I always ask my players, how often do you watch football? And you'd be surprised how many don't. Fine, I can't make them. I'm not their dad. I go, right. And, and of the ones that do, I suggest that you do watch a bit more football. And the ones that do, I then ask the question, how often do you study football? And very few of them do. So after, if you're left back, how often do you watch Zinchenko? Not the ball, just Zinchenko when Arsenal's on. Or whoever it might be. It doesn't, you know, just your position. And understand what they do. Well, that improves you. That just improves you. It will, you will get better by studying football away from when I'm coaching you. Footballers want to do just, if, if you concentrate on that primarily, one, the wins will come. Two, the football will get better. And three, ultimately, the players will want to play for you, play for the club, and want to succeed at a higher level, which is ultimately where everyone wants to be. That, that for me, is... That's what I did at Crew. The reason we got relegated, in the second, we finished we had the lowest budget in the league, finished in the top half, sold five players to the championship, got the lowest budget, got relegated, because half the team went to a higher level. You know, that, that's, that's, that's their business model. That's, you know, they're the only team in the country that's had uh, a profit in the last two accounts because we've just sold players that are now worth 10 million quid. That, that, that was the business model. I'm the, I'm the fall guy for it. Fine. Didn't think I would be because the chairman said, this is the cycle, we'll go through it again. They fired me. Fine. New chairman. Okay. You know, that, that's just part and parcel of football. I think... When you when you take a slightly longer view than that, you know, it's interesting you said that this Paul Ince's longest job in management and he's what is it, a year? It, that's that's a frightening stat. You're not telling me he's that bad a manager that he can't last a year before ready. It's just it's just not just not having it. He's probably picked unwisely <laughs> in the first place, you know, and I'm not here to be judging jury over Paul Ince's manager career, far from it, because he's been an excellent footballer and he's he's having a terrific managerial career. But it can't be. It can't be. It's just impossible. Just not having that he is. He is that bad a manager that he has to. You know, a year is his limit. It's just impossible. So for me, if you improve the players and make sure that they're in that mindset to improve, the pressure dissipates slightly, or certainly any. You know, because they're in a different mindset, and they will improve and they'll buy into what you're doing. Johnny, I'm, I've been a bit rude, um, so I'm going to let you kind of take over um, for now. And just obviously, while we've got this opportunity as someone who's who's had that um, managerial experience, what what do you want to ask um, David? David, I've been listening. It's really interesting listening to you. One of the things I was going to ask you, you know, Paul Lynch was out of management for eight years before he came to Reading. And we've got Dylan, who's on a co-host with us who, you know, has got a good coaching career but doesn't get a look in, to be honest, in the English Football League. How how difficult is it for someone like Paul Ince, who's been out of the game for eight years, to come in as management as games moved on? And do you think that young coaches are getting a fair opportunity or, you know, name players like Ince, you know, that the bigger names are getting these chances ahead of coaches who are doing the hard yards? Um, it's, a, it's a really good question. And I think it's one that's um, 
there is different factors at play within football um, that um, nobody appreciates. Right? So, um, first of all, football is a small industry. Believe it or not, it's a small industry. It's a global industry, but it's not a big one. If you're in it, you're in it. It's hard to get in it. Certainly as managers and head coaches and stuff. So part of my pro-license, my independent study, I did it on what do key stakeholders, owners, director of football look for when employing a head coach or a manager. You'd be astounded if I told you how many of them said, I just want to know them. They've got to have previous, they've got to have, one of them said, um, that they've got to have got promoted out of the league we're in. Well, that narrows it down very significantly. Yeah. Before you've even started, they've got to be a good guy. Is what one of them said. You've gone, do you analyze that? No, we're just into you. <laughs> You're taking a big gamble, a huge gamble, if you just go, you know, because then my next question was, have you ever had any interview techniques, any interview training? No. So I'm like shaking my head, thinking, you've got to be a good guy. I'm not sure that's a great sort of um, <laughs> set of parameters. You're then going to do that interview because you're not doing any sort of um, soft skills analysis and you've not had any training to spot this. Well, it's no wonder you've got the sixth highest budget in the championship and you finished 19th last year, which is well, it's not last year before, something like that it was. Yeah. I can't remember the actual numbers, but I just think, wow, that's just, just beggar's belief. So in terms of... Um, uh, you know, do, do people like Dylan get a fair crack of the whip? No, is a short answer. There's a massive recency bias. If you've got promoted in the last 12 months, 18 months, you're flavour of the month. If you get relegated, you suddenly crap. Forget the context. Do I know managers that have been rel- uh, promoted on like double the budget of any team in the league and they thought really highly of Can't take anything away from them. They've got promoted. They should have got promoted with about 15 games to spare. Yeah. The fact that they didn't, is not, it doesn't matter. They got promoted. You go fair enough. You get, I got relegated. Lowest budget. Should have finished where we finished. Half the team were playing a lot higher. Made the club profit for two years on the spin. All that kind of stuff. I'm a crap manager. If you got relegated, you're not. It's finished. You know, way above budget. All that kind of stuff. The other, so there's all that. with a recency bias. The other thing to consider is... Um, your name. Paul Ince is very fortunate because he had a fantastic, fantastic playing career. Yeah. Nobody can take that away from him. You know, would any other manager who played majority in League One and League Two get a job after eight years out of the game? Probably not. Yeah. That's to, to Paul Ince's massive advantage. It just makes people like me work harder, you know, work smarter. We can't rely on our name. There's certainly managers this year that have got jobs that have gone, how the hell has he got that job? Good luck to him. I'm not saying it from a place of bitterness or, or envy or anything like that. But you go, I don't think what their recruitment process was because they surely couldn't have come up with that answer. But they do. And that's, that's their choice and they'll stick with them and die by their decisions. The other thing, so, so there's your name as a player, you know, Lampard, Gerard, nice people, both lovely people. Did they do the hard yards enough? No. Have they suffered for it in senior management? Probably. Yeah. I, I, again, I'm I'm just speaking as a fan, as, a, as an outsider. Would they have benefited from doing three or four years in, under 18s each of them, as opposed to Gerard doing one and Lampard doing none? Probably. Probably. Because it is a different skill, you find out more about yourself and about the situation you're in. But who am I to say to to, to absolute football legends what their managerial coach is like? like nobody's nobody's a good look to them. So there's that. The final thing is network. Yeah. Network. Network. If you know the key decision makers at football clubs, as a as a head coach, a manager, a player, even. You're a massive advantage. Massive advantage. People appoint people who they're familiar with, who they trust. Yeah. 
you know, uh, so let, let me give you an example of, um, I like Gareth Angel. He's a top, top, I don't know if you've had him on, but he's a, he's a terrific, him, him and, him and Dobbo, Mr. Dobson, assistant, they are lovely, lovely people. They deserve a crack at the championship. They do. 100%. I don't think any football fan could, could argue that. How QPR have gone from Neil Critchley, who I have coached with at Crew, brilliant guy again, and his style, Gareth Ainsworth's style, I don't know that how that happens, because they are compl- they are polar opposites. Is it just a so gamble? One, just hope for well, the best? One, well, well, one of them is a really bad appointment, because they're so, so stylistically different. I don't know which one, and it's not for me to judge. Yeah. But you can't go from one to the other. Whichever way around that is, I don't know. It's not my uh, David, can I, can I ask you, you mentioned Lampard and Gerrard, um, and it was one of the questions I wanted to ask you, actually, because you, you've been... So Paul Ince was a, a, a fantastic player, played for England. Um, you know, we all, we all know that. And obviously Lampard and Gerrard, two great examples of fantastic players for club and country. Um, kind of hasn't really worked out for them in, in management. You've you've come from a playing background, and then I think you were were you under 18s uh, coach at <laughs> Is that right? Well, I, I, no, I, I was I was player when I was at when I got through. I was I was a coach with under nines, nine and tens. It was so I've been coaching for fourteen years now, and then I I um, so I coached for. Th- Three years, and then I become academy manager. Yeah, so I was academy manager for three years before I become uh, manager for I... five years. And obviously, when I was academy manager, I was uh, still you, coaching. And you get this. Uh, I hear this a lot about referees. You know, it helps if they've been a player, and and quite often it's the other way around where they say, "Well, they, you know, they don't know what it's like as a as a player." But we're not talking about referees; we're talking about managers. So, um. <clears throat> Do you think that it helps or actually it could be a hindrance that you've had a, a great career as a, a player or, or should it and and is it really all about how good of a coach, how good of a manager you are? Because if you, you, you look at the most successful managers and they haven't been the best players, you know, you look at people like um, Arsene Wenger, Mourinho, um, you know, even Thomas Tuchel came in and won the Champions League with, with Chelsea. Um, you know, Graham Potter has done the hard yards, hasn't he? He's come up from a, a low level and he talked about it recently in one of the press conferences. Um, do you, do you think there's, there is too much favour to, um, managers that have been good players? Or, or should the criteria first and foremost be, you know, what actually let's let's look at what they've achieved as a manager. Dylan, for example, okay, it's out in Africa, it's out in Asia, but he he's won multiple trophies. He kept he's got a reputation in South Africa now where a, a team will a team that's in the relegation zone will appoint him because which is exactly what's happened to him because like like you were saying, the last four teams he's taken over in the relegation zone, he's kept them up. So he's like a, a, a troubleshooter. He's that, right. like a sort of a Neil Warnock out in South Africa right. in, in a way. Um, yeah. you, you know, do, do we need some kind of, uh, and we're getting away from Reading now, but do we need some sort yeah. of change in mentality towards who, who should be, uh, uh, you know, brought in as managers? It, it's, it's not for me to say whether the, um, there is too many ex-players or high-level players given jobs, you know. What I would say is it needs to be a far more fuller process across the board. You know, I was talking to someone today. Uh, I had a, a, a teams meeting with someone today from a data company, um, and he sources managers um, for clubs. Clubs employ him in his company, and he said you'd be surprised how many teams. Uh, outside of certainly the Premier League, don't look at objective data, then don't go to a specialist recruitment company for the soft skills, personality, um, how they can run a session, 
etc. You know how how do they interact with people? These are all measurable, you know, skills. If you do the research, clubs don't do that. Directors of football don't do that. They will pick someone they are familiar with or have heard a good story about or think it's a good fit. And the operative word being think. Now that might mean that someone who has flat appallings is the best person for the job. But it also means fed blogs from the local non-league scene as or, or a, a Dylan. Someone who's done that, you know. So why did Blackpool appoint Mick McCarthy and not Dylan Kerr? I don't know the answer. It's just a question. <laughs> you know, my, my guess is they didn't do a thorough recruitment process. I don't know. I've, I've no idea. They might have said they did and they considered it, but I've no idea. I'm not on the inside. Um, for me, it's an area of football that needs so much, so much more work and due diligence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because the thing is, the people who get the, carry the can are the managers themselves. Not the people. Can I ask you a quick them. question on that? I mentioned somewhere about there should be managers having, um, like the transfer window for managers where they're given the opportunity. What do you make of that? Like, because uh, how many, I think there's 18 <laughs> managers been sacked in the championship so far this season. Something. Yeah. You're not telling me the 18 managers have got it wrong. Yeah. No, I'm not here to be the LMA representative. I'm not. It's good for me. I'm going away. <laughs> It's, you just you, you can't tell me 18 managers got it wrong. I just won't have it. No. At least half of them, there'll be the wrong appointment in the first place. At least half. Yeah. Well, the people above them that need to carry the can. That doesn't mean that they have to lose the jobs or sell the club. I don't mean that. We've got to be a transparency and an understanding. And I think the transparency comes from what are we, you know, so if I ask you two guys, getting back onto the Reading theme, what is Reading? What is Reading as a football club? Where are they going to be in the next three years? In a big transition. <laughs> well, yeah, I... that, cause, because that's got, that's got to be the, the manager's got to understand that that's, whatever the answer is, that's how he's got to take the club forward. The board's got to understand that. The fans have got to understand that. Now, I don't know the answer. You two will be a better place than me. David, I, I, I was just thinking as you said that before you, you put that question to both of us. I just started thinking back to the Medeski chapter of um, of Reading's history. And it wasn't, and, and yes, of course, it was fantastic. The 106 season, you know, that amazing first season in, in the Premier League when, you know, we finished eighth. Um, so, yeah, it was all about results. It was about the way we played and, and all that. But that was built on foundations. And that actually came uh, right back to the person at the top, Sir John Medeski. You know, he ran a very successful business and he built Reading Football Club on solid foundations. So you had, you know, a really good scouting network in place. And and I I can't remember how many years it was. Johnny, you might be able to help me out here. But Brian McDermott, he was at the club for something like 10 years yeah. You know, helping with the scouting and the, the the coaching before he even became manager, and and we got we unearthed players like Kevin Kevin Doyle and and Stephen Hunt and and people like that, um, fantastic players for Reading. But they had all the foundations in place last year. A lot of Reading fans will say well, it was a complete mess. We didn't have, and we had I think Johnny we had Brian McDermott on, didn't we a year ago, and he said. And you asked him about, you know, where are these Irish players now? And he said, well, they're still out there. You're just not scouting for them at the moment. Yeah. So There's no scouting I, I, network in place, was there? I, I think that's the, the disappointment of Reading fans. And it has got better since a year ago. But the disappointment of Reading fans is that, you know, we had that system in place and, and now, and then we lost it. And, and it's, it's almost like the pennies dropped over the last year that, oh, actually, maybe we should sort of work back towards what you know what was success previously and the foundations that that was built on so and David, the academy states as well yeah oh, David, that, that lost that which built was you know over a number of years wasn't it so it's a real yeah. starting again process as a club david i just uh we're 
nearly out of time now, but I just got one final question for you. If you, you know, from a Reading context, obviously being a Reading podcast, yeah. but also in, in general, um, crews are a really unique club, isn't it? And you've touched on that. And, and I've, you know, I've watched Reading away to crew. I remember, I think it's probably back in the mid eighties and, uh, I went all the way up to Crew for a midweek game. I think it was Crew one one nil. I stood behind the goal, you know, right next to the goal, and I think it was Craig Craig Hignett scored the winning goal for Crew. But it was such a, you know, it it was, um, even though we we went there, that was part of the experience. And and I think I went to see uh, Brentford against Palace recently, and um, Michael Elise was was playing for Palace. Used to play for Reading did really well you know what Brentford have have done is kind of what Reading did before um what what do you think you know knowing what whatever it is you you know about Reading at the moment that there's obviously the transfer embargo and all that sort of thing and the budget yes of course what what do you what would be your thoughts in terms of how Reading could progress in in the way that you talked about the, the, the thing for me is you, you mentioned Brentford and I was talking before I was thinking about Brentford we've got a clear identity of what they do we buy under undervalued players bring them to the Premier League expose them to the greatest shop in the, the world football and sell them on you do that with that's their business model crew get them at you know in nappies coach them for 15 years put them in the first team when they're not ready sell them for a modest amount to someone out of the, the food line you know, you can go on Brighton. You know, similar to, to Brentford in that sense. I go right. What what's what can Reading achieve realistically? Because we all know that they've been under embargo. We all know, and you're telling me they're still under it. We all all know that money is tight. We all know the Championship is highly competitive, and there's a high proportion of teams that are very similar. Well, I don't think this is a manager's job to work out the answers to all these questions. This is a chief exec. This is a, a, the board. And they've got to come up with their answers. Now, and, and we can speculate and we should probably speculate as fan, as football fans, as Reading fans, you know, the best way forward. Can you find underdeveloped talent in Ireland? Well, Reading were really good at that. Now that's going to be well, already the saturated market because of Brexit. Everyone's looking at Irish players. Reading could not have timed it any worse. To sort of pull the plug, looking in Ireland, <laughs> because everyone else is now looking at Ireland, whereas before that was very much a niche area for them that they had success with. You mentioned too with Hunt and Doyle, you know. So, can they find little, you know, sort of margins of advantage? And it doesn't have to be recruitment, but that's obviously a big. That can have a big, big advantage for the relative small what you might think is a small advantage. So you've got to, as a as a board, as a chief exec, as, and, and, and the manager should be involved in this at some point, they've got to come up with the answers that's right for that football club, in this case, being Reading. Do I know? No, I don't. Could I hazard a guess at some of the things? Yeah, I could. You know, so if Reading, Reading's budget is, let's say, £15 million this year, I don't know, I've no idea, but let's just say that. Well, I can remember Aston Villa, which is slightly maybe a bit of an onerous example, but it's still relevant. They spent £5 million on transfers one year and they bought five £1 million players. Ashley Westwood was one for a million from Crew. that's why I know. They bought a lad called Jordan Bowie for half a million from Chesterfield. It didn't work out. Well, Ashley Westwood ended up, they ended up selling him for something like four million and he played 200 games for Aston Villa because they had a different strategy. Now they could have afforded it because their budget was significantly greater than, than Reading's and they just got five shipments, all the rest of it. But it doesn't have to be five million, it could be one million and go and buy three, 250 gun players or whatever. You know, because you can, but you've got to actually do the work. You've got to have an actual foundation in place to do that. So you've got to be smart. I think there's too many championship clubs that just exist in their own little vacuum. And I'm not levelling that at Reading or anyone in particular because I'm just talking as a fan. 
but the best ones, the smartest ones. Why are Burnley top of the league? Because they've got the biggest budget? Probably. Also because they scouted in an area that the manager knows really well. Uh, you know, I was with someone yesterday who, who managed in Belgium this season. You know, Gordon, the, the lad who, who plays in midfield. Him. He couldn't get in Andalek's team last year. He's top of the championship. Why? Because he can handle the pressure and he can play the right way. Well, they're two big things. Because <laughs> he's used to playing at Anderlecht, or he did play at Anderlecht, but he couldn't really get in the team, so he knew what the pressure was. But coming to Burnley is a bit of a breeze. Because it's not as, as as big a level. You know, it's not by much, but just a little bit. And the pressure is actually less. So he walks in and goes, oh, this is a breeze. Suddenly looks a brilliant player. They've signed about six of them. They're all they're now the top of the league. I appreciate they've got more money than most, so and which is a, probably the biggest factor. But they've, through the manager's own doing, by the scenes of it, again, I'm just an outsider, they've they've found a little niche. How they've got past Brexit, don't know. You know, the under-21 internationals or something for Belgium. You know, so you can do it. You've got to think smart. And you've got to have actually a strategy to do it. And then believe in people and stick with people to get it right. And if you do, you end up going from 17 to 7. Now, it might not mean you get promoted but you see a significant improvement and then you've got to constantly be doing that so people don't come and have your dinner. Yeah. That's exactly what Reading did, wasn't it, for years? That was exactly yeah. how we did it. Just David, look, we've, we've, we've taken up lots of your time. Really, really appreciate having you on. Fascinating insight from, uh, uh, a, well, currently a former manager, but hopefully not for too much longer and, and wish you well with, with that. Um and uh, maybe uh, Reading will be playing against you before too long, but let, let's uh, let's wait and see. But wish you well with that, David. Um, thanks ever so much for coming on. And our next episode of the 1871 podcast is available from 7pm on Thursday evening when our special guest will be Paul Holsgrove, who played for the Royals between 1994 and 1997, part of that team that uh, went so close to going up to the... Premier League, of course. Um, so join us for our next episode anytime after 7pm on Thursday. And coming up, we've got something special for you. We've got a Reading FC quiz for you to take part in. And we'll have more details about that in our next episode. So all that leaves me to say is thank you, Johnny. And in particular, thank you ever so much, David, for being our special guest tonight. So thank you to you both. And come on, you ours. Sports Social Podcast Network.